So we're in Acts chapter 19, and we finished up verse 10, which was Paul doing the baptism and Apollos uh, being in Corinth. So now we're on verse 11, which is the sons of Sceva. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, one of the things to understand is words are really powerful, so the things that you say are really important. Touch is even more powerful. And I've told this probably not to some of you because you haven't been here that long. Uh, when we were in the old building, before we moved into this building, there was a gentleman that came to the congregation that literally had a legion of demons on him. When we finally started running him off and I said, who was in there? He said, my name is Legion, you know, just like on the Bible. In fact, Brian and I spent the better part of an evening in Brian's backyard running demons out of this guy. Kayleen is nodding her head because she remembers the incident. One of the things that this guy would do is after uh, the opening song when everybody goes around and shakes hands and wishes everybody Shabbat Shalom, everybody who shook hands with would be like him. And it would take us a couple of weeks to get the congregation cleared out after he had gone and shaken hands with people. So we finally said, all right, you can be here. We're not telling you you can't come, but you will sit there in the pew and you will not touch anybody and you will not shake anybody's hands. And you will not hold the toilet over the children and there's just a whole bunch of stuff you will not do. And as I say, we, we did mostly finally get him cleared out and it's my understanding that he's now in, in good shape, praise God. But the idea of things touching you and communicating a spirit through touch is entirely scriptural. That's why people get hands laid on them. So when you come into the prayer room and you need prayer, what we'll do is we'll anoint your forehead with oil and we will lay hands on you. That is literally for spiritual transference. That's why we do it. The Jews, when they anoint a new rabbi, the old rabbis lay hands on him. When a preacher gets ordained into service, the previous preachers lay hands on him. And what they're doing is they're passing the spirit and the anointing that they have received on to the next person, and that's transferred by touch. So the idea that people are getting a hold of handkerchiefs and aprons and stuff that Paul has handled, and even without Paul's presence, those affect healing and spiritual deliverance is obviously scriptural, it's written in scripture. But the idea here is spirits are transferred by touch. So the healing power of God is transferred by touch and clean and unclean spirits are both transferred by touch. So you really want to be careful about who you allow to lay hands on you because unclean spirits are also transferred by touch. So you you come into the prayer room and to the extent that you trust the elders and me, getting hands laid on you is benign. But you can get hands laid on you in other contexts, and that's not benign at all. So be careful about that. It's fairly important. Notice how this says this. Pick it up at 11 again. 
And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Notice that the power that Paul has is transferred through contact with his skin, and from there it goes to the sicko. It's not the case that Paul prays over the cloth. There's no prayers involved here. It simply came in contact with Paul's skin, and from Paul to the object, and then from the object to the person who needed it. Verse 13, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Yeshua over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you that they would probably have said Jesus because they're speaking Greek. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. I can remember the first time I ran a demon off. I was really unsure whether to say in the name of Jesus or in the name of Yeshua. Because everything I had read about it and all the teaching I had had said, you tell them in the name of Jesus to get out of there. So it's going to work if I say Yeshua. And, and I honestly didn't know. And I have since discovered Yeshua worked just fine. But these guys are trying to find a key to give somebody some relief. And what they're seeing is Paul is operating in the name of Yeshua, or probably Jesus. As I say, they're speaking Greek, so it may very well have been Jesus or Jesus. And so what they're saying, okay, this guy's got some power. We'll use the one he's praying to. Not recognizing that the power comes from the relationship, not simply from the name. So Paul has a relationship. These guys simply know the name. And they don't really understand who or what the name fully represents. So when they say, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, Seven sons of the Jewish priest in Skeva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Yeshua was extolled. So one of the things that happened uh, with the gathering, they kept chaining him up, and he kept breaking his chains. So the idea that somebody has demonic strength is, again, perfectly scriptural. When we were working on the young man that I was mentioning earlier, he was jumping up and down and flailing and kicking and screaming, and it took two of us to hold him down because he was just going. So again, this is all sort of par for the course. Verse 18. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Confessing and divulging their practices. Note that, and I'm going to come back and talk about it in a second. Verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic art brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So 
you have people who have changed sides. You have people who were practicing magic arts, and you also had people who were practicing something. That could be any number of things. Could be things like divination. You know, when you have somebody that's able to douse for water, for example. There are all sorts of spiritual things that happen in the world, and the idea here that these people were practicing them and had become convicted upon seeing the power of Yeshua displayed through Paul and had given those things up is obviously very believable because it's written here. But these books, books at that time were expensive because there were no printing presses. So if you had a book of any kind, it was a major investment, which, as we said before, is why at the Council of Jerusalem, they gave the Gentiles a certain minimal set of behavioral standards so that they could get into the synagogue and listen to the books be read, because that's where the books were, and books were extremely expensive. So the idea that these people were so convicted that they would destroy books worth 50,000 pieces of silver is remarkable. And I will suggest to you that the value of those books was far more than simply the wages of someone who had written them. So, for example, you have a Torah scroll, and a kosher Torah scroll to this day is handwritten. And they have scribes, and it is a job that pays a living wage. So a scribe in a Jewish community who would sit down and handwrite a Torah scroll, a Torah scroll five or ten years ago was a minimum of $10,000. And that simply represents the labor of the scribe who wrote it. You have on top of that these magic books, which in addition to the labor of the one who wrote them, have a value based on the perceived power that they grant the owner. So I've got two books the same length. This one is a nice story of romance or something like that. This one is a magic book. The magic book is going to be worth more money because of the power you will believe that it confers upon you. So this is a tremendous amount of wealth that's destroyed as a result of being convicted by the Spirit. So on to verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. The way, of course, as you know, is those who follow Yeshua. So about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Ephesus is a major center of the worship of Artemis or Diana. And one of the things that you have, any place that attracts tourists, people will set up businesses to service the tourism industry. So you have this major temple to Artemis or Diana in Ephesus, and people make pilgrimages from all over the area to come and worship at the temple. 
Consequently, you then have service industries that spring up to make money off of the tourists. So what we have is silversmiths who are making little replicas of the shrine. And they are doing a brisk business selling them to the tourists that come in to worship at the Temple of Artemis. That's the setup. So now I'm all the way down to verse 25. He, in this case, is Demetrius. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificent, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So there's sort of two things here. One is this guy Paul is going around and he's saying, Idols are not really gods. Now, the first thing that's going to happen, of course, is that people are going to stop buying our little silver icons. The second thing that's going to happen is people are going to quit coming to town to visit the temple. So you've got two problems here. One is the problem the idol makers have. They may not buy our idols anymore. But everybody else there is saying, whoa, if people quit worshiping Diana, we aren't going to have a tourist trade anymore, which means that all of our business goes up in smoke. Now, quick word on idols and idolatry. People get the gods they want. The thing about an idol is an idol is something that you go to to get something that you cannot get by natural means. So you want good crops, or you want the guy or the girl down the street, or you want wealth, or whatever it is you want. You go to this idol, and you're invoking supernatural power to get you this thing that you want. In the case of these craftsmen, there is a fair degree of cynicism. Notice there isn't anything in here that says, whoa, these folks are blaspheming. Blasphemy is when you take the name of a god in vain and you believe that that God has actual deity. That's not the problem here. The problem here is they won't buy our trinkets anymore and they'll quit coming to town. And oh yeah, by the way, the great goddess Artemis will be disrespected, but that's just that, that's way down the list. And the idea is people invent the gods that they want. And that's the thing about idols. Idols will give you anything you want because you invent them. And the kind of an idol you invent is a function of the thing that you want. Which, by the way, is why there's a wide range of idols, because there's a wide range of human desires. You've got idols that give you success in battle. You've got idols that give you success in commerce. You've got idols that give you good crops. All sorts of idols out there. And basically, they are the invention of people who have a need or a want. And, of course, don't know God. And actually, that's not true. Because the other part of that is, Israel always fell into idolatry. And Israel does know God. Israel knows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet, Israel falls into idol worship. 
And in fact, that's the thing that finally gets them thrown out of the pool, is not specifically the idol worship, but the violence and injustice that comes as a function of idol worship. So when you worship something that's not God, what you're doing is you are dealing in power, which is to say, I want this. I'm going to go to this idol to get it, and then in order to make that happen, I now have supernatural justification for the injustices that I must do in order to obtain it in the natural. So you wind up having child sacrifice, case of uh, the South American idols. In the 15, 16, 17, you know, they did human sacrifice. And you know, every time they had a war, all the prisoners were taken up and sacrificed to the idol. So it essentially becomes a vehicle by which the darkest parts of the human heart can find expression. Because you remember, the human heart, unmodified by God, is evil. Every desire of the heart is only evil continually. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I and mean, that's all scripture. So if you have an idol that you have invented, which allows the darkest parts of your heart to come forward and be justified, what winds up is you descend into injustice, violence, child sacrifice, and so forth. And when Israel gets to that point, that's when God whistles up an empire and sands them off flat. Because he says, you can no longer govern yourselves. People who worship idols bring to the idol that which they are willing to trade for the thing that the idol is going to give them. God, on the other hand, specifies the table of sacrifice. It is not a question of, I'll take whatever you want. It is a question of, this is the set of acceptable sacrifices, and your decision of what you're willing to trade for my favor is not a factor anymore. We're all the way down to verse 28, maybe. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. In other words, you don't want to wander into the middle of an angry mob. 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. So this is a classic example of the psychology of crowds or mobs. Once you get a mob rolling, you will pick up other people like a tumbleweed picks up whatever. And the mob will get bigger and bigger, and by the time it gets to wherever it fetches up, you'll have a whole bunch of people in the mob that have no idea why they're there. Down to verse 33, maybe. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, apparently a meteor. Seeing then that these cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. 
So what he's saying is we've got this meteor that fell from the sky, and you can see it. Can't be denied. Now, parenthesis, and the fact that this guy Paul is saying that this stuff doesn't exist is nonsense because you can see it. Okay, that's sort of the argument he's making. So I'm all the way down to verse 37. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. In other words, these guys who are there are Jews. We've got these Jews that were grabbed up and sucked into this crowd, and they're trying to talk. Now, one of the things that Jews and exiles don't do is make trouble. So the fact that these Jews had lived in Ephesus, which is the center of Diana worship, and had not tried to proselytize people away from Diana, they have a reputation of being not blasphemers and not sacrilegious. We aren't talking about Paul here. We're talking about the Jews that got sucked into the middle of this crowd. You might make the case that Paul under those circumstances might be considered sacrilegious, but not this. So verse 37 again. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. So what he's saying is all this swirling ruckus where everybody's chanting and so forth is not going to solve any problems. The people you've got here are not the problem. They're not at fault. They've never caused any problem before. So if you've got a problem with somebody, take him to court. Or if you want a law passed, come to the council and get a new law passed. But right now you're out of order. Verse 40. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So this guy is not a Roman official. Remember the thing that happens in occupied Roman territory, which is, by the way, one of the reasons that Yeshua was crucified, is because the Jews were afraid that he was going to incite a rebellion against Rome, and that rebellion would cause Rome to come down with their army and take away the freedom that the Jews had. Same thing here is going on in Ephesus, except they're not Jews. They're modern-day Turks or Greeks or whatever their ethnicity is. And what they're saying is, you guys need to knock this off, otherwise we're going to be charged with rioting, which is to say the Romans are going to come in here and reimpose order, and nobody wants that to happen. So 20. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the delegates, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus from Berea, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy of the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went ahead and were waiting for us 
at Troas. Notice that the pronoun just shifted again from third person to first person. So verse 5 again. Those went ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas. There we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So Paul was long-winded. There were many lamps in the upper room where we had gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome with sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So this is a resurrection from the dead. No question in my mind that the kid was completely dead, and Paul raised him from the dead. Which, by the way, goes to one of the things that I'm saying. There's lots of people in Scripture that have been raised from the dead. Only one of those people is the Messiah. The rest of those people raised from the dead are not the Messiah. And the way you can tell the difference is because the Messiah did everything that the Scripture said of him. These other folks did not. Verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, he set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. Verse 14. When he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. So the next thing that's going to happen is Paul is going to have the Ephesian elders, and Ephesus is just a short distance from where he is, come and, and he's going to say farewell to them. The last thing I sort of wanted to say is they are in the period between unleavened bread. Back in verse 6, they sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So they're in the time between Passover and Shavuot. Remember, last time Paul had cut his hair because he had taken a vow, which requires you to abstain from anything having to do with grapes and to let your hair grow long. And at the end of that, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to cut your hair and you're supposed to burn your hair with a sacrifice in the temple. So I am inserting that Paul, when he cut his hair, put it in a baggie, and he is carrying his hair with him with the intention of getting to Jerusalem before the next piece of ascent, which is Shavuot, so he can clear his Nazarite vow. And of course, we know those of you who have read ahead and know what the Sabbath story comes out, we know that he is in fact on his way with a group of other Nazarites, all of whom are going to sacrifice and clear their vows when he is arrested, and that will lead to his final trip to Rome. So two reasons he's trying to get there before Shavuot. He was not there for unleavened bread, which is a feast of ascent. The next feast of ascent is Shavuot. So he wants to get there for that one. 
and he's got the added incentive that he has got a vow that he needs to clear. So I'm suggesting all of that is playing into what's going on right there. He's starting in Greece, and he's going up over the top of the Aegean Sea and down the coast of Turkey, and he'll then go across to the area of Tyre or Sidon, and from there he'll go on foot to Jerusalem. So he's sort of hurrying because he wants to get there before the next Feast of Ascent, and that's why he's not wandering through Asia and visiting all the churches he planted in Asia. And he will, in fact, ask the elders of the church at Ephesus to come down to the port where he can talk to them there. And we'll, we'll take that up next time. One of the things that you'll want to read in preparation for that is Revelation chapter 2. So you'll have this farewell address to the elders of Ephesus, and we'll cross-reference that to the letter to the Ephesians in Revelation 2. So you know where I'm going. And we will not do that next time. Next time we will have the first couple of chapters of the book of Proverbs, and then the time after that we'll pick it up here. And I shall...